Good morning, Boker Tov, and a Freilichen Purim Katan to everyone. Literally, Shulchan uh, says we don't need a good excuse to party. Tov Lev Mishta Tamid, we spoke about last week, the Karban Tamid, and the Ramah who begins and ends his commentary on Arachayim with Tamid, Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Tamid, and ends with Purim Katan. So I hope everyone's having a Suda today. Last night, my daughter in New York sent me a picture of herself having kreplach at like 11 o'clock at night. I said, I never had more nachas from any of my kids in my life. <laughs> kreplach, perm katan. I didn't even have to remind her. Mamish, that's a nachas. Yiddish a nachas. Purim nachas. So, freilich and perm katan to all. A few uh, housekeeping notes, and then we'll thank our sponsors and get started. First of all, next week there is no shear because uh, we have our annual BRS base measures fly into New York. We're going with uh, 25 guys to New York, packing in two days, Rashi Yeshiva, Rabbanim, making our way around all of New York. We're gonna exhaust them until they wave the white flag and beg for mercy. We fly up early Monday morning, back late Tuesday night, and we're gonna see uh, countless incredible people. I can't wait to share their inspiration and insight with you. So there is no sheer next Tuesday morning. Also, please note that our Biera's global campaign is going to kick off again February 24th. So we haven't started yet, but this is the precursor of the announcement. Get your wallets, your checkbooks, your Venmo, your Zelle, your wiring instructions ready. February 24th, those who are not BRS members, you're a BRS member, you do your part to keep the lights on, and to pay my salary to teach the Parsha class. If you're not a BRS member, but you enjoy our shiurim and our classes and our articles and our programs and our panels, then it's appropriate to do your part to enable us to continue to share and spread our Torah. So, as we spoke about Parshas Truma, Nasa Venishma is nice, but Vyikhuli Truma. All the compliments, Rabbi, I love the Parshas Shir. Rabbi, thank you for the Parshas Shir. I can't make my way through the grove or out to dinner with my family. Rabbi, I love the Parshas Shir. Imagine if every time you came over to thank me, I said, here's what it costs. I'd have a lot more peace and quiet. Just joking. I love it that you come over. Thank you for coming over. Thank you even more for your support. Please look for February 24th when we kick it off. Okay. Our Pasha series is sponsored by Becky and Avi Katz, a family in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, the Ilanishmas, David Ben, Menachem Manush. Also, I want to wish, Talia, you should video this. I want to wish a very happy birthday, 50th birthday. I'm in trouble for announcing that maybe. But Becky Katz, our sponsor for the year. Very, very happy birthday on her 50th birthday. She continued to have strength and a lot of nachas from her family and a lot of simcha and a lot of joy. If you'd like to know what Becky Katz wanted for her birthday, I don't know if that's what she wanted, but what her husband got her was Divrei Torah on every parsha, put together a book for her for her birthday. Her favorite rabbi, speakers, people she learns with, and gave her a book of her favorite Divrei Torah uh, for her birthday. What a great testament to who she is. This morning, she is also sponsored anonymously, Akar Satov. For BRS, taking uh, someone to uncomfortable, positive, active steps in their Avodos Hashem. By Elaine Feigenbaum, Jay, in loving memory of her mother, Feigenbaum Savram, Florence Feigenbaum, and her 13 year site. By the Rosenbaum Schreier families, Lee Nishma's Gitto Mindabas Savram, Maxine Sullivan, his yurtzeit is today, the 14th of Adar. Lee Nishma's Moshe Aram ben Shlomo Yechil, yurtzeit 19th of Adar. And Fosh Lemuel David Bear ben Edel, and Esther Tila Bas Ariel Tzipor, Judy Palmer, it's an honor of Joel's upcoming 51st anniversary of his bar mitzvah Parsha, Kisisa. And Rufur Shlaim for Yosef Simchaim Ben Sarachana, Chanach Kila Basar Leah, Esther Tila Basar Yotzipora, Besoshar Chole Yisrael, and as well Carmel Shai Ben Reza. That's what happens when you don't have Shir next week. You got a lot of sponsors for this week. Okay, we're ready. Parshas Kisisa, page 484 in the Arts Girl Stone, Chumash. That's our signal. Let's go. Vaidabra Hashem Moshe Lemor. 
God spoke to Moshe saying, When you take a census of the Jewish people, according to their numbers, how do you take a census of the Jewish people? Well, in America, they knock on doors. They send a link and you fill out a survey. You take a census, the most efficient, productive way, by counting people. But that is not a Jewish census. The Jewish census is, make a contribution. Now, interestingly, unlike my little appeal just now for the global campaign, or my big appeal for our Capital Campus campaign, this was a small appeal, a half shekel. And not only was it a small appeal, but Zayid Nukolova, Pekud Machtza Shekel, Shekel, Akodesh, everyone has to give half shekel, Esrim Gera, Shekel, Machtza Shekel, Shem Hashem, and Hashir Lo Yarbeh, can't give more. Hadal Lo Yamit, don't give less. Everyone give the exact same thing. It's a funny appeal. We don't run appeals like that. We have levels and layers and names, Avram Yitzchak Yaakov, gold, silver, platinum, uh, the Shvatim, different holy cities in Israel. Committees sit deep into the night debating what name should we call the different levels so we get people to up their level and wear the lanyard and get private access to the VIP event, but not the Machtza Shekel. There are no levels, there are no names, there are no layers, there are no lanyards, there is no VIP event. Hashir Loyarbeh. You're poor, you're impoverished, you're indigent, too bad. You can't give less than half a shekel. You're rich, you're wealthy, you want the world to know, you want your name all over, too bad. You can't give more. Everybody gave the exact same thing for this, for this uh, census. You collect it, and it goes to Avodos Omoid. It all goes to the Korbanos Tzibur, the public sacrifices, the funds necessary to provide, to support, the public sacrifices, the sacrifices on behalf of the community, all came, and that's why everybody was equal when it came to them. So it's interesting that we count people. We don't count people. We don't count people. How do we count people? By their contribution. Isn't that an interesting insight? The Jewish people, we number, Rav Weinfeld, who I like to quote, Rav Weinfeld says, you know, the total Jewish population on the globe is a rounding error in the population of China. The total population of the Jewish people across the globe are a rounding error of the population of China. And yet, we're counted by what we contribute to the world, not by our number. We're counted by our contribution, not by our number. And look around the world at our contribution to technology and medicine and to the difference we make in the world. Look at how many Nobel Prizes, look how many breakthroughs, look how much advancement, look how much progress, look how much ethics and morality, we are meant to when we've succeeded in contributing to the world. We introduced to the world to the greatest truth of monotheism, of ethical monotheism. So the beginning of our parsha is a reminder that we're counted not by our number, but we're counted by the contribution that we make. By the contribution that we make. It's a very, very important lesson, a very, very important message. But I want to take a look at it by Soloveitchik to get us started. By Soloveitchik says the following, Let each one give to Hashem an atonement for his soul. What we were meant to give, Kisisa, when you lift, when you count somebody, by the way, when you acknowledge they exist, you lift their spirits. Person feels invisible, a person feels they don't count, person feels they don't matter. Kisisa is Rosh. When you acknowledge someone exists, you lift their spirits, you lift their head. Vinasnu, a person has to give Ish Kofer Nafsho. What did you contribute? The Machtza Shekel represented a Kofer Nafsho, an atonement for your soul. It's a funny kind of a sentence. Could you imagine someone knocks on the door and they say, would you, like to con- would you like to participate 
in the 2022 American census, the Florida census, the Boca Raton census. And you say, well, I don't know, I don't really have time and I can't really get involved right now and I'm not really interested. And they say, whoa, whoa, you have to do it for Kofar Nafsho. It's an atonement for your soul. You slam that door as quickly as it would shut. Atonement for your soul, what are you talking about? I'm trying to count how many people there are. So Rebbe explains the following. He says, Hashem requires that each person redeems himself to buy himself back from God. What is a redemption? What is a kofar nafsho? To redeem your soul is to buy yourself back from God. The entire world is consecrated. It's hektish. The only legal means by which we're allowed to use hektish is through redemption. The halachic means to redeem an object is a trade. You can exchange the hektish item with a non-hektish item. The non-consecrated item takes on the consecrated status of the item, while the hektish item takes on the secular nature of the non-consecrated item. So Meiser Sheni, the farmer, the farmer, we have an amazing farmer, spoke here a few weeks ago, and she is our guest on Behind the Bima tomorrow night. If you weren't in Boca Raton Synagogue to hear her, a farmer observing Shemitah, you, you'll want to tune into this episode. She's incredible. So the farmer, wherever they lived in Israel, separated their Meiser Sheni, and it had to be brought to Yerushalayim, but it wouldn't necessarily make it there. So you'd be potet. You would redeem it onto something else, and you'd bring the coin, and you'd purchase something there. So you were able to remove the sanctity, the consecrated status from the food, and put it on the coin, the coin became consecrated, and the food stuff became mundane. So a person can redeem the sacred or consecrated status from something, sort of say liberate it, allow it to simply be mundane. One's body, one's clothes, one's children, the entire universe requires redemption to allow us to make use of them. Yet what can man possibly offer in trade that could affect such redemption? The entire world belongs to God. So Soloveitchik says, you know, we live in a world, it's all the hectic. It's all sanctified, it's all consecrated, it all belongs to Him. If we're lucky, it's on loan to us. If we're lucky, we borrow it. But really, it's His, it's not ours. So what right do we have to use it? What right do we have to enjoy it? What right do we have to collect it? Upon reflection on this paradox, David HaMelech, in a moment of resignation, proclaimed, a man cannot redeem himself, he cannot give on to Hashem his redemption payment. Pasuk in Tehillim, Perak Memtes. Yet many Jews have tradition of reciting Kaparas on Erev Yom Kippur, where we quote a different Pasuk in which Hashem says, Redeem him from descending to the pit. I have found ransom. Pasuk in Eov. When Hashem's attribute of judgment is evident, David Amalek's verse is operative, while when his attribute of mercy prevails, the Pasuk from Eov pertains. Redemption is indeed possible. One makes this payment, says the Rav, in three ways. You ready? So these innocuous words at the beginning of our parasha, Ish Kofar Nafsho, that when you give that contribution, when we count and make ourselves counted, we are redeeming our soul. How do we redeem our soul? In other words, how do we have license to live and operate and derive pleasure in this world? Maybe every single moment of every single day should exclusively be dedicated to sacred and holy activity. What right do we have to do mundane things like eat and enjoy and interact with the physical world around us? How do we redeem it? How do we redeem ourselves? He says three ways. Number one, Hashem the infinite, the Ein Sof, contracted himself to allow the existence of the world to make it possible for a finite world to coexist with the infinite. In keeping with the imperative of the Ha'alach to Bidrachav, man must also engage in symptom. Hashem is infinite, he's omnipotent. Hashem is everything. He existed before us, he will exist after us. He doesn't take up the whole universe, he is outside the universe. We can't even describe what he is because it's outside our experience. So how does Hashem create a world and allow us to have a relationship with him in it? So the Kabbalists, the Mikubalim explain, it's through a process called Simtsum. Hashem contracts himself. He contracts 
in order to be able to fit into this world. Though he's infinite and has no boundaries, he contracts himself so that he can operate in this world. Many harbor illusions of greatness, thinking his abilities are limitless, that he can attain infinity. First redemption coin that God exacts from us is our own contraction. Just as Hashem himself engages in symptom, so must we. Man expresses symptom first and foremost by observing the precepts of halacha. Fealty to Jewish law is unenforceable. No police, no executive branch of government, no jails, no punishment. By following halacha, despite the lack of external enforcement, we engage in symptom. So the first way we do symptom is, I want to eat anywhere, anything, but I don't. When I electively, voluntarily live a restrictive life, I'm being mitzantzein myself. I want to look at, I want to say, I want to eat, I want to go, I want to do, but I create a set of boundaries and I live within those boundaries. I'm emulating God, I'm imitating God, I'm practicing tzimtzum. I'm living within the boundaries that are set forth. We don't have halachic police and halachic jails, so why? And in fact, without that, you see the world today. The levels of assimilation, the levels of intermarriage, the levels of walking away, the levels of people who have a casual attitude towards halacha, to Jewish life and living. Because there is no enforcement system. There is no there law enforcement. So when we voluntarily, electively do it, we are imitating God's symptom. Hashem, you contracted, you constricted yourself, and so do we. Even though the world is out there. Now, there were many periods of Jewish history, centuries and millennia, where others created symptom for us. They stuffed us in a ghetto. And they said, you can't go to this university, you can't go to that graduate school, you can't hold this job, you can't enter our restaurant. And whether the Jew wanted to be mitzamtim or not, they had no choice. This golden Medina, this great country in which we live, that gives us such freedom and democracy and liberty for which we must be incredibly grateful and proud also creates challenge and has spun us into a crisis. Because it says, come, there is no tzimtzum. There are no boundaries. Come, join, erase whatever differences. Be who you want, who you feel you are. Participate and partake of whatever you want to be in. So when we have to nevertheless be mitzantim ourselves, and this is a challenge of our generation. We have kids, not only kids, adults. They say, but I want to live like everybody else. But I want to live that lifestyle. But I want to partake. But I want to go. But I want to wear. But I want to say. But I want to eat. But I want to do. What do you mean I can't? What do you mean I have boundaries? What do you mean I'm different? We imitate Hashem through tzimtzum. Through tzimtzum. The next attribute of Hashem that we must imitate, the second redemption coin to redeem our worldly life, is Hester, or Ne'elam, the attribute of obscurity. The Rebona Shalom not only contracts himself, he obscures himself. He does not act demonstrably, nor does he seek recognition. Hashem is a Kel Mistater. He's a hidden God. He's hidden. He controls the universe, but behind the curtain. He doesn't need to be front and center. He doesn't need the spotlight. He doesn't reveal himself to us. He's comfortable and he prefers to be in the shadows. And that's what he wants from us. Man is naturally inclined to strive for recognition, for honor. He wishes his efforts and actions to be appreciated by as many of his peers with as much fanfare as possible. Not everybody, but there is a natural inclination and instinct, part of the human psyche, to love honor, to love attention. Yet the greatest individuals in Jewish history reflect precisely the opposite tendency, a predisposition towards obscurity. Take, for example, an august institution from thousands of years ago, the Anshikinah Sagadola, the men of the Great Assembly. This group of rabbis preserved the remnant of Israel through the first Golos. Anshikinah Sagadola instituted the form of contemporary prayer, as well as the standard formula for brachos, the laws of Muktzah, 
and the Rabbanans of Shabbos, their impact on everyday life is immeasurable. Who were the representatives of this noble body? How many of its names do we know? We don't have time now, but if I asked everybody, shout out, how many members of the Anshay Knesset Sagidola can we name? Ezra, Nehemiah, Mordechai, everybody knows Mordechai, that's why he knew all those languages. Zerubavel, Shimon Tzadik, that's what we know. The Gemara states there were prophets among this group. Who were they? We don't know. Why did they not include their names? Why in the transmission of our Torah Shabbat do we not know their names? Because they walked in the way of Hashem. In the members of the Hebra Kadisha, there's no plaque. We don't list their names next to the Pillar Society. The people who participate in this holiest, most sacred mitzvah, the Chesed Shal Emes that can't be repaid, it's in obscurity, it's in the shadows, it's quiet, it's humble, it's modest. So the second redemption that we pay, so to say, of our souls is to do what's right without recognition or attention. Unless you're giving a large donation, then we are happy to put your name up in lights. <laughs> the Rashba has a tshuva, it's an exception, it motivates other people to do it. But generally speaking, we operate in the shadows and in the background. And finally, the third redemption coin, in order to make use of this world, is Elaine, voiceless, mute, passive acceptance. Kodesh Baruch reveals himself in a dramatic fashion. Hashem of glory thunders. More often, he is mute and passive. This tendency towards silence is also included in his slowness to anger. A Jew regularly recites a brach upon eating and satisfying his hunger. All is well. He's healthy in the possession of his faculties. One can readily sense the presence of Hashem. In quote, cruel contrast, upon the tragic death of a mother, father, son, daughter, spouse, we tear clothing, we say, Baruch Dayana Emes. person prepares the body for burial, places it in the ground, shovels it on top of the casket, Everything that means anything to him lies lifeless before him in the grave. He recites the bracha. Where is the atta? Where is God's presence? At that moment, he's most tormented by the question. He responds with kaddish, affirming that the world is God's. Everything that takes place in it is a reflection of his will. Unanswerable, unexplained tragedies have accompanied the Jew in his long history. When faced with death, when a Jew is confronted with the ultimate teku, an unanswerable question, he recites the bracha dayan ha'emes. Emotional sublimation is the greatest act of redemption a Jew can pay the Holy One. So the Rav, I think very beautifully, and there's a lot more to say, but not right now, really beautifully describes these three coins. The coin doesn't mean a physical, material, monetary payment of redemption. The coin is the symbol of making a payment. We pay God, we redeem ourselves through, through experiences of tzimtzum. I want to eat everywhere. I want Saturdays at the beach. I want to dress like, look like, act like everybody else. Mitzamtzim ourselves. There are barriers, there are boundaries. I want the spotlight, I want the fanfare, I want the, I want the uh, ego, the honor. Be mitzamtim yourself. Do what's right, promote what's right, be the catalyst for what's right, but like Hashem, in the background. And lastly, I want to understand. That we see later in our parsha. Moshe Rabbeinu says, show me your face. Why do bad things happen to good people? The question of theodicy that's never been answered before. A horrible, horrible question. It's not a horrible question. It's a horrible question because there is no answer. Why do bad things happen to good people? Whether it's one good person, a child, whether it's six million, why do bad things happen to good people? If we protest Hashem, if we object Hashem, if we want to and crave to understand, to comprehend, then don't feel bad or guilty because none other than Moshe Rabbeinu, the one who was closest with Hashem than anyone ever, was bothered by this very same question. Hashem, show me your face. Let me understand. And Hashem says, you can only see the back of my head. Nobody can see my face. Back of my head means only in retrospect, only after the fact, can you sometimes put the pieces of the puzzle together. 
But as it's happening in real time, you will never understand. Because with the admission, with the concession that there's a God, is the admission and concession that we are not God, and therefore, by definition, there's so much that we can't and won't understand. We don't. And that is the third act of Tzimtzum, that is the third pinyad nefesh, the third coin that we pay, is Hashem to live in your world. The cost of living in your world, the cost of the privilege of living in your world, is to surrender that we will not understand everything. We won't understand. So what do we do? Rafersh famously said, don't ask lama, but lama. Don't ask why. Why do bad things happen to good people? You could get stuck. And there are, I think, heretics who will try to give you the answer. They make lots of videos and they try to get lots of followers. And they're very um, sensationalistic, so they get a big audience. This is why Hashem did this. This is why the Holocaust happened. Insane people make videos today telling us exactly why the Holocaust happened. And this is why women get this type of cancer, and this is why men suffer this illness, and this is why this is happening. There are people, and they have followers, who say and pretend that they are God, and they can tell us why things... So Moshe Rabbeinu didn't get to know, but Hashem gave a direct message to them. It's heresy. It's absolute heresy. It's a failure to pay this third and final pidyon nefesh. Say, Hashem, I don't know why. And I'm not going to get stuck on lama. I'm not going to get stuck on why, because that is a question that has no answer. Instead, I will ask, lima. For what? How can I be better? How can I grow? How can I improve? How can I change? Because this is the reason it happened, so that's what I need to change? Who knows? When we get upstairs, we'll find out. But it's a good idea to change nonetheless, whether that was the reason or not. So don't listen to anyone who tells you they know because they're competing with Hashem and Hashem has no interest. He doesn't need to compete back with them. Hashir lo yarbel, we said. Let's move right along. The rich person cannot add more. The rich person cannot add more. Why is it specifically half a shekel wonders of Nachman? The Heleg of Nachman of Breslau, the Breslau of Rehem, a much more efficient way to do a census is everybody gives a whole shekel. Why a half shekel? The Gamma and why is everyone equal? What is this, communism, socialism? Everybody gives the exact same thing. I went to Russia twice. I went to Moldova, Kishinev. My cousin was running a yeshiva there. I went once to help on Sukkot. I went once to help on Purim. I went from Israel. I was in my second year of Israel. Flew on Moldova Airlines. <laughs> so when they went around up and down the aisle with the cart for drinks, put down the tray, which barely stayed, so they were handing out cups of seltzer to everybody. I said, you have Coke? And I'll never forget in her Russian accent, the woman said, everybody gets the same thing. <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow, communism is not quite yet fully over. So everybody gives the same thing. Half shekel. Why is everybody giving the same thing? And wouldn't we want to encourage the person who could give a million shekel? Give a billion shekel? A trillion shekel? Half shekel. Same? Well, nope. Can't take more. I understand the Ani. You know, you have a minimum threshold. Trying to tell everybody there's a minimum. Beg, borrow, steal, do what you got to do. Everybody's got to give the minimum. But a maximum threshold? Why would we tell the poor, the rich person, stop, can't give more? Says Rav Nachman, This is today. Purim Katan. Rav Nachman says, you give a half shekel, you think, half shekels are gurnished. This is a nothing. I'm contributing next to nothing. Inconsequential. Invisible. Makes no difference. Negligible. 
What's a half shekel? What's a half dollar? It's nothing. And this is exactly the point that Torah wanted to communicate. Don't hesitate, don't pause, don't be ashamed or feel guilty for giving small things to Hashem. This world is built on small things. What seems negligible, what looks inconsequential, what seems invisible is what changes the world. It's what means everything to Hashem. It is the backbone, the foundation of relationships. Marriages aren't made or broken by flowers and chocolates. They're made and broken by whether the socks made it in the hamper or whether the toilet seat was put down or not. You're laughing. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. Come to a Messir Saget and ask, where did this marriage fall apart? And it didn't fall apart by major ideological differences fell apart because the small, seemingly negligible things. You don't meet my needs, you don't respond, you don't communicate, you don't acknowledge my bid for connection. And the relationship with Hashem is no different. Of course it's the big moments. Of course it's rise to the occasion. But it's the seemingly small, did you make the little bracha, did you say thank you? The bid for connection, do we acknowledge its existence, do we connect, do we answer the call? They need a tenth for the shiva minion, it's inconvenient. You already started to take out your tefillin. You got to put it back in and get in your car and find the address and get there. Small, insignificant, inconsequential, negligible. Who cares? Did you make the tent to the, to the person sitting shiva? It's not small. To the Rebona Shalom, it's not small. The world is built on these seemingly small things. The things that look unimportant. The things that look inconsequential. Sometimes what seems small and inconsequential is us. We think, what difference do we make? We're small. We're inconsequential. We're fallible. We're frail. We make mistakes. Does Hashem really care about us? Little small me. Who even notices if I don't make it to shul? Who even would notice if I disappear tomorrow? What difference do I make? So we think, you know, my little Shmona Esrei, my little Bracha, my little dollar. There's somebody in our community, a very, very holy person, a very precious holy person who moved in recently. And the Tzedakah sadly, only passes the man section every day. She comes to Davin Shachar's Menchamarv, with a minion, she's not saying Kaddish. Very holy, I'm embarrassing that person right now, I apologize. Comes to Davin every day, but the Tzedakah Docs doesn't make it around the Ezra's Nashim. So she puts a dollar every day in the little slot in my door where other Shilas are left and checks are deposited. And there's a dollar, just a dollar bill. Every day I take it in and every dollar I, I think, wow. She thinks it's so small, it's a little dollar. You know what that dollar is? She could say, the Tzedakah box, they don't care enough to pass the Tzedakah box around the Ezra's Nashim. They don't get my Tzedakah. A little dollar every day. In that box, what it does for my day, every day to start my day. A dollar, a little dollar. Machetz is a shekel. Says Rab Nachman, so the Torah says, every Yid, every Jew, I don't care if you're a billionaire, trillionaire, you're on Tom Chishabbos, everyone has a half a dollar. And everyone gives the same, and everyone needs to know the little small things, they seem insignificant, inconsequential, they mean the world to me, says Hashem. They make all the difference in the world. Person thinks Hashem only cares about the Shemana Esrei and the Bracha. Hashem only cares about the Daf Yomi or the Kapitel Tehillim of the Tzaddik, of the Tzaddikas. I was asking my, we're doing this uh, global campaign in a few weeks, so I said to my kids at dinner last night, 
who should we have on behind the bima that week? We have to get a large audience. So the global campaign to help us is sure. So my nine-year-old son says, I have an idea. I said, who? He said, you should get Rav Chaim Kanievsky. <laughs> so I don't think he's doing podcasts these days. He's like, he's the biggest. He's the biggest gadol. So I love that he knows that and thinks that. It's incredible. It's incredible. I love that he's so cute that he thinks that we could get Rav Chaim Kanievsky on behind the bima. But we think that Sadiqim Gedolim, oh, his learning, his bracha, his tehillim, his holding the door for someone, his dollar in the pushka, that's what matters. But me, I'm a katan, I'm a nothing, ich bin a gurnisht. What's the point of the few pages I learn, the few tehillim I don't even understand that I say, the fact that I made it to shul, the dollar I put in the rabbis. teaches in muaran. Ay, 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 we're already halfway done and we haven't even started yet. <laughs> that a person has to give themselves the benefit of You know, we always find ourselves the mistakes that we make and we beat ourselves up and we sit and we marinate in shame when we come up short. But do we find and do we celebrate the success? Do we identify the little victories? Do we recognize the nikudos hatovos, those small little things that are good Every Jew, no matter how distant, no matter how far they've, far they've fallen, every Jew is positive. Do we emphasize? Do we celebrate? Do we pause and identify? You know what it means to Hashem? We spoke about it several weeks ago on Shabbos. To give nachas ruach to Hashem Yisbarach. To give Hashem nachas. What that means to give Hashem nachas. We know how good it feels to give our parents, our boss, our spouse, someone we admire, our mentor, to give them nachas. See how good it feels to know we gave Hashem nachas? The little things give him the greatest nachas. And that's the nachas zashakal. Hashir lo yarbeh. Mishu asher b'torah mitzvahs v'yigilam adregos gvoz. If you're wealthy in Torah and mitzvahs, you finish Shah 17 times, and you made billion dollar donations to the community, lo lehiz goes. Don't get arrogant or proud. Don't feel so proud because you have so much. And if you have so little, don't see yourself as small. Everyone just give your machatis hashekel. Everybody show up and everybody do your part and everybody contribute what looks and feels to be so small. Everybody do your thing. And that, dear friends, is also the theme of this Purim Katan today. When we have two Adars, a leap year such as today, seven times every 19 years or something like that. We have a Purim Katan, a leap year, an Adar Sheni. So Purim is really in the second Adar, so it's adjacent to Nisan. Smichas Geula Geula. We create the redemption next to the redemption, Adar Sheni and Nisan. But today's Purim Katan. You can't let the 15th of Adar go by, the 14th of Adar go by in a uh, small fashion. So there's a Purim Katan, a Shushan Purim Katan. We call it small. But the Svar Makadoshim say it's even greater and bigger. You know why? When it comes to the real Purim, you need a shtikal l'chaim, you need to put on a costume in order to really lose yourself and surrender to experience a bittel, to really get the das. The highest knowledge you can have is to know how little you know. The greatest das is to be mevatel your das. Sounds paradoxical, right? The greatest das, the highest level of knowledge, is to know that I know nothing. What do you mean? If I know nothing, how is that the highest level? Because that's the highest level. The people who think they know are on the low level of knowledge. But the people, you know, Daniel Kahaneman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, a cousin of the Panovich Rosh Hashiva, he was asked, 
What does he think is the most dangerous thing? If there were one thing he could change in the world, what would it be? And his answer was overconfidence. Overconfidence. Wars have been launched. Relationships have been broken. People have died because of overconfidence. Doctors, of themselves. If he could change anything, it's overconfidence. So the greatest knowledge, the highest das, is when you have no das. The highest knowledge is when you know you know nothing. Bittel hadas. So of Purim, we dress in costumes and we get inebriated and we actually carry ourselves. We look around the world and people are in costumes. I don't recognize, I don't know, I don't comprehend, I can't see. It's a venahapochu, it's a, the world is upside down. I don't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. I have no das. And that's the highest das. When I'm evata, my das. So we need all those other physical stimuli to do it on Purim, but Purim katan, today, we get to that level of das without those things. So it's even higher. It's even holier. It's an ace ratzon. There are people we have to daven for. There are things we have to daven for. Don't let today go by without leaning into it and davening. Don't let today go by without realizing that we have to fight the Amalek in our own lives. Amalek is that voice of eh, that nothing's worthy of awe. Awe versus eh. To be a yid is awe. Psh, Hashem, you're everywhere in this world. You're awesome. To be a Malik is eh. Koach habitl. Not bitl of das. A Malik or mevatal. Rafutna writes, a Malik or mevatal, everything. Nothing is worthy of all. Nothing is significant. Nothing is impressive. Eh. Everything is coincidence and random and chance and cynical and sarcastic. And there's that voice inside us. And today, Purim Katan, we squash it, we extinguish it, we silence it. And instead, we express our voice not of eh, but of awe. Wow, Hashem. You're everywhere and you're in every one, and you're in everything, and that gives me the chills, that gives me goosebumps, that fills me with awe. Not koach habitl, koach kedusha, Not the koach of eb, but the koach of awe. Purim katan, it's even holier, so have a su'uda, and practice, and celebrate, and be mevatel, and defeat the Amalek in us. It's a day of Esratzon. Esther went, Asholokadas, she went. She wasn't invited to the Melech. But she barged in and she made her demands. If it meets the king's, if the king is willing, please. So today we go in, we're not invited. You know, on Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, we say, The tour says, where those Uvachains come, they come from Esther. She says, I'm coming to the king. We come in, we say, Hashem, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy, you didn't invite me, I don't deserve to be in here. If you decapitate me at this moment, you're in the right. However, however, if it pleases you, could you give her a full shlema to Esther, Tehillah, Basariel, Tzipora, Karmiel, Shai, Ben Reza, and everyone else who needs one? I'm not invited, I don't belong, I'm not worthy, but in Malamelech Tov Hashem on this Purim Katan, on this Eisrat Zon. Could you help those who want to be married find their spouse, and those who want to be pregnant have their baby? Let those babies come out healthy and well. So you got to take advantage of the small things. The machatzis hashekel, Rabbi Nachman says. Machatzis. I don't care how rich you are in Torah and mitzvahs on this Purim Katan. We're nothing. I don't care how poor you think you are. You think you're unworthy. You have nothing. You can still barge into the king and ask for what you need. This Purim Katan is a special day. Don't let it go by. Turn the page. Turn a few pages. Page 488. I'm skipping a few sections of our parsha. They're worth talking about. 
we have in the past. You can listen next week when we don't have Shir. There are many years of Parsha Shir online. Vayakel, you could hear online, you could find them. So we have the Kior, which again, the question begs itself. If this is one of the vessels of the Mishkan, why wasn't it back in Parsha's Truma? Ay. We have the Besamim Marjor Mordechai. We have the incense we talked about last Shabbos, the Ketoras. If it's your minog, read it from the cloth. <laughs> Sorry for my little rant. The Ketoras, the significance of the Ketoras. And that brings us to Perak Lamed Aleph, Pasuk Aleph. Hashem spoke to Moshe and he said, I have called you by name, Betzal, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Yehuda. And I have filled you with a godly spirit. Hashem says, Betzalel, put on your gartel, I've made you a Chabadnikar. Betzalel, put a special pinch in your hat, you're the first Chabadnik. Why? Chachma, Bina, Ubedas. This is where it comes from. What is the philosophy of the Balatanya? What is the definition of Chachma, Bina, and Das? Certainly I am inadequate to tell you. For another time we can explore it together. But that's what Hashem is telling us, telling Betzalel, that he filled Betzalel with those things. So Rabbi Moshe has a fantastic insight. As soon as I find it, I will tell it to you. There it is. Rabbi Moshe says the following. Oh, amazing. Ray, Ray, see, Karasi, I called previously Betzalah ben Uri ben Chur, Vemaleos, and I fill him with Ruach Halokim, Chachma bin Odas, Uvachom Malacha. He's an artisan, he's a craftsman, he's a designer, he's a builder. I filled him with all these qualities and all these talents. Ray, see, Karasi, I previously called him. Frechter and Moshe asked for Moshe, where, when? What are we talking about? First of all, how old is Betzalel here? He's a bar mitzvah bocher. He's a bar mitzvah bocher. And he's already the architect of the Mishkan. Don't dismiss the kids. But why the word re'eh, see? So listen to what Rav Moshe says. Listen to what Rav Moshe says. I'm going to Baltimore the Shabbos. I'm speaking in Baltimore and I'm trying to figure out what to say in the par- I hope the people of Baltimore don't listen to the Pasha class. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying there yet. So if you're from Baltimore, forget everything. So Rav Moshe says the following. So this insight, it blew me away. Where do we find that God called out to him and said, you have these talents and skills? And the answer is, because he had those talents and skills. Says Rav Moshe. When a person thinks about their life, when a person looks into themselves and says, what am I good at? Why am I here? What am I programmed to contribute to this world? What are my talents? What are my skills? What are the gifts that I was given? That's Hashem calling you. He doesn't have to actually knock on our door, send us an email. Kodesh Baruch doesn't call our cell phone. Kodesh Baruch doesn't speak to us. He speaks to us through the gifts He gave us. So if we look in ourselves and we say, you know what, I'm good at this, that, or the other thing, and I'm not good at it only for myself. Those talents, those skills, those gifts are not just so I can have more money and more things and more experiences, although there's nothing wrong with enjoying that. But those were given to me to make a difference, to contribute and to better and to improve the world around me. That's why I have them. That's my responsibility with them. It's the beginning of Mesil Sasharim. 
the foundation of foundations and the root of serving Hashem is for a person to ask themselves, What is my duty and obligation? What is my responsibility in the world? Well, how do I know? I didn't get the memo. How do I know? I didn't get a FedEx package. I didn't get an email. I didn't get the file. Where does Hashem tell me what I meant to do to the world? How do I know? The answer is you have to sit down and ask yourself. You have to sit and ask ourselves. So Moshe says, this is also the pshat that Hashem said to Avram, bracha. So Avram says, what do you mean? How am I supposed to give a bracha? What do you mean I'm a bracha? How am I meant to be a bracha? Look at your life and ask yourself, what talents, what skills, what gifts, what difference are you meant to make? We don't live this world for ourselves. We are here to serve. We are here to make a difference. And I have to tell you, if you want pleasure and happiness and you like yourself, there is nothing you can do more for yourself than be a difference for others. There's just nothing better that feels better in the world. So maybe it's ego, maybe it's narcissistic, maybe it's self-serving, but it happens to be that he programmed us that when we make that difference, that feeling that I've actually contributed and had a positive outcome in the world, there's no better feeling. That's why my job, there's no better job on the entire world than my job. I wouldn't trade it for anything. There's no better job in the world than what I get to do. I have the privilege and the gift to do is to try to every day help and to try to make a difference. And you can do it too and you do do it too. You don't have to be professional. That's the strike against me. When I get upstairs, well, that was your job. You got paid to it. That was your career. When you run the Chavra Kadisha or the Chesed or you volunteer to give the Shir or you're the Gabbai in the Minyan or you call the person or you visit the person and you're the, it's not your career, it's not your profession, it's not how you get it paid, it's not what you, how you made a living, then you far surpass any rabbi. But to be a difference, to make a difference to others, says Rav Moshe, hey, where did Hashem call Betzalah? Where do we see that? Where's the evidence of it? You know what the answer is? Betzalah had those talents and skills. Whatever talents and skills we have means it is our calling. It is our calling. That's what we're supposed to make our, our avocation, our vocation, our vocation, our avocation, our calling. Is what we do a job or is it a calling? If you're lucky in life, it's both. For some who are less lucky, but they need to pay the bills nonetheless, they have a job, and then they have a calling. For some, they are separate, and if you're fortunate, they overlap. But we look at our life and we say, what am I meant to do? And that is Hashem's re'eh, karasi. Hashem says, hey, I called out to you and I told you, I gave you these skills. You're a great communicator. You're incredibly and highly organized. You're a leader who can get people to follow. You're a foot soldier who gets things done. Who are you? What's your talent? What's your skill? What, are you artistic? Are you creative? What difference do you make? Hashem, by giving you that talent and skill, was calling upon you to use it. Don't ignore him. Paraklam Adez Pasagalaf. We're skipping Shabbos. Oh, the Parsha is so rich and filled. And we're skipping all these sections, I guess, because we'll speak about them in Baltimore, apparently. Observe my Shabbos. It doesn't say Shabbosi. Observe my Shabbos. It says observe my Shabbos. Why? This week and next week? Well, why stop at two? And every Shabbos, you're really keeping two Shabboses. What are the two Shabboses you're keeping every Shabbos? Come to Baltimore, this Shabbos, like that. Now, we've spoken about in the past, the Ksavah Kabbalah, Rav Yaakov Mecklenburg has a fantastic insight. But moving right along, we get to the Vayar Am Ki Boshesh Moshe. 
Perak Lamed Beis Pasuk Aleph. Oy, the people saw. If you don't krechts when you start to read this, where it all begins to go wrong. So beautifully, he took us out. Ten plagues, splitting of the sea, miracles, the falling of the mud. It's been incredible. Building of a mishkan, a love affair, a rendezvous point. And this is where it all goes wrong. If you don't krechts when you read this and say, oh, I hate this part. I wish they didn't. I wish I could warn them. Don't do it. The people saw that Moshe had delayed coming down the mountain. Where'd they go wrong? They didn't realize that the day follows the night, so they miscalculated in the timing. When he said 40 days, when the 40 days were meant to begin versus when they began, and therefore they panicked. They panic. They gather around Aaron, rise up, make for us gods that will go before us. For this man Moshe who brought us in the land of Egypt, we don't know what became of him. Where is he? He's not back, he's gone. He climbed the mountain, he's never coming down. So we don't know what to do, so no. What do we do? So Aaron says, take your jewelry, bring it to me. They fashion, what do you mean, Aaron? Aaron is the spokesperson? Aaron is calling for the building of the eagle? How do we understand all of this? So before we get to that, Rav Ruvain Feinstein, this beautiful sefer that was given to me, Nahor Shalom. Rav Ruvain Feinstein, I checked, by the way, when he quotes the Rosh Hashiva, he's talking about his father, Rav Moshe. Rav Ruvain Feinstein says, this passage begins the sequence of events that led to the terrible sin of the eagle. Moshe was late in returning. They panicked. They thought he was dead. They come to Aaron and demanded he make a replacement. They felt their emissary was missing. They needed a new vehicle to continue the relationship with Hashem. Every year we explain the Kuzari, Rav Levi. I find the most compelling explanation. They were not, in fact... They were not, in fact, disloyal to Hashem. They were not worshiping an idol. They wanted to serve Hashem. They had just become accustomed to serve Him through a physical, tangible means. We are physical people. We operate through our five senses. And therefore, we believe the truth of what our five senses can perceive. So when Moshe could speak to Him, and Moshe could hold their hand, and Moshe was a presence in their lives, through Moshe, they connected to Hashem. And they panicked. Without Moshe, what do we do? We're all on our own. We can't do this. So the idea was to build an eagle. We'll build a physical manifestation which will take the place, or at least buy us time. The question is, ask for Ruben Feinstein a great question. Why, when Moshe does not come back, I never thought of this question before. I've learned Parshas Kisisa a few times in my life. Never thought of this question. When they panic, there are a lot of alternatives of what they could have done in their state of panic. Give me an option. What could they have done in their state of panic? Was there an alternative to Moshe other than a golden inanimate calf? Good. Aaron. Never occurred to me that question. Why didn't they say, Moshe, uh, Aaron. Holy Aaron. Brother Aaron. Your brother Moshe's gone. He's not coming back. I guess you need to take over. Continuity. You are the successor. Aaron, I know you're older than Moshe, you were always number two, but slide over a seat, you just became number one. You just became number one. He's not coming back. I was recently uh, talking about, I love talking too, but I was talking about my good friend Rabbi Jonathan Morgus in, in Scarsdale and the horrific, horrific story that happened in that community. There was a terrible fire one Shabbos morning and the beloved Rabbi and Rebetzin of the community passed away in a fire Friday night and he went from a young assistant rabbi, not necessarily on the trajectory of the rabbinate for his whole life. And he, like the community, came to shul that morning to find out Rubenstein passed away and his rabbitson. The whole community came to shul Shabbos morning to find out that they were gone. 
and young assistant inexperienced rabbi, you're not only now not, not now only the senior rabbi of the community, you need to comfort and usher the community through this horrific loss. It's unimaginable. I have such awe of him. So the people could have turned to Aaron and said, some loss, there's a tragedy. We don't know where Moshe went, he's not coming back. We're grieving, we're mourning, we're in a state of loss. But you know what? You're taken over. Why build an eagle instead of simply passing the mantle onto Aaron? It's a good question. It's a good question. I never thought of that question. Says Rav Ruvain. Says Rav Ruvain. Why did Kleisra need to look elsewhere for the new Moshe Rabbeinu? Aaron was a tzaddik. They knew that well. Why wasn't it the obvious choice? Why wasn't it the obvious choice? The answer is, the old saying goes, I never heard it, but the old saying goes, better a calf from the street than our own Aaron. When it comes to appointing a leader over people, it's important that their impression of him be one of honor and dignity. In this way, he'll be looked at with the proper respect and will be able to lead the nation. When a person grows up among the people like our Aaron did, the childish behaviors and immaturities of his youth make an impression on people that sticks with him even when he grows older. Because of this, it's very difficult for people to completely accept one of their own with complete hisbatlas. They remember him as a child before he earned the greatness he now possesses. The nation gave no thought to making Aaron the new emissary, for they knew him as one of their own. Moshe, only Moshe could reign over them. In other words, says Rav Ruben Feinstein, where did Aaron grow up? Among the people. They saw him make noise in the middle of shul. They saw him throwing candies and collecting and scurrying at a bar mitzvah. They saw him leave his plate after Kiddush and not put it. They knew little Aaron, loud Aaron. They saw him grow up like every child. Where did Moshe grow up? Moshe grew up in the palace. Moshe grew up among royalty. That's why Hashem arranged it that way. Svarno says, even Ezra say, Moshe grew up among royalty. First of all, he would have the confidence of royalty to confront royalty, but also he'd have the respect of the people who would say, oh, he's not one of us. So Aaron was different. Now that Moshe was gone, Klai Yisrael sought a calf from the street to take his place, rather than the great Aaron who grew up in front of them. At my grandfather, Allah Vashalom's funeral in Elizabeth, New Jersey, my grandfather, Sam Eboff, so uh, Rav Lazar Tights gave uh, Hesped, and he said about my grandfather, my, my great-grandparents, my grandparents were in Elizabeth before the Tights, the Prells, but my grandfather knew Rabbi Tights, young Rabbi Tights, from when he was born. So in his hesped, he said about my grandfather that from the day that he took over for his father and became a Rav of J.C. and Elizabeth, my grandfather never called him by his first name. He called him the Rav, he called him Rabbi Tights. Part of the hesped he gave about my grandfather was that despite his having grown up and been in his class and interacted with him and having seen him as a little boy, he treated him as his Rav with awe and respect because even though he was much as younger, that was the relationship he had with him. So that's a hard thing to achieve. Not everybody can achieve that, says Rav Feinstein. And so much so that the people didn't achieve it. And they saw Aaron as great as much as they loved him, as accessible as he was, and as warm as he was, and as much of a peacemaker as he was, and as much as they loved him, he was still little Aaron. So they had trouble connecting and loving him in that way. Loving him in that way. So what happens? Kosh they build the Egel. By Daber Shem Moshe, Pasuk Zayin. Hashem says to Moshe, Lech reid kishichis amchasha alisa meretz mitzrayim. Hashem says to Moshe, oh boy, Moshe, I know that we're having a Yom Yun up here. I know there's a great Yarche Kala going up on here. I know we're having a great convention up here. But while the cat's away, the mice are playing. While you and I are steiging up here at the Aguda conference at the RCA, the OU, whatever conference it is, let's hope it was a all above, all of the above conference, you need to go down. Lech Reid, time to go home. You know why? 
Your people that I brought out of the land of Egypt, they are corrupt. They've lost their way. Now, if I'm Moshe, what do I say right now? Which word in that Pasuk bothers you? Amcha. <laughs> Amcha. You know? It's like if you have it out, Baruch Hashem, my kids are older now. When they were little kids, cause it. You need to come home because your kids are not behaving and your kids are out of control and your kids are not doing their homework and your kids are not going to bed and your kids are not doing anything and you need to come home right now because your kids, Hashem says to Moshe, you need to go home right now because your kids are not behaving. So Yechavet says to me what I would think Moshe Rabbeinu would say to Hashem. My kids? They're not your kids? Amcha? Moshe says, Amcha? They're my kids? All of a sudden, you're not the omnipotent, infinite creator, source of the universe. They're my kids, Amcha. Your kids? What's going on over here? What's going on over here? So the Gemara Baruch Lamed Beis. Gemara Baruch Lamed Beis says, "Amar Kadosh Baruch Hu Moshe Lech Red Mi Gedulascha Klum Nasati Lacha Gedula El B'Shvil Yisrael." Climb down from your high horse. Climb down from your greatness. Climb down from your position of distinction because you only have it on behalf and the merit of the Jewish people. And now that your people have become corrupt, now that your people have made such a critical mistake, what do I need you for? So I'm taking your status. I'm taking your title. Lech Go down, down and out. So asks the Megid Yosef, asks Rav Saratskin, I don't understand. Moshe Rabbeinu. Avdi Moshe, Hashem testifies about Moshe, how much he loves Moshe and cherishes Moshe. And all of a sudden, Moshe is using Moshe. Eh, your people, they're corrupt. I lost the people. What, what good are you to me? What good are you to me? That's the Gemara. What do I need you for? What good are you to me? Was Hashem just using Moshe? And Moshe doesn't have... A status, his greatness on his own? What in the world is going on here? Okay, he lost the people. The people lost their way. They became corrupt. They made a terrible mistake. But Moshe is still Moshe. Moshe is still humble. Moshe is like, How did Moshe lose his status? Ah, you, why do I need you anymore? Why do I need you anymore? So he says the following amazing episode. He says, I want to get to a few more different Torahs. So I won't read it to you inside. He brings a lot of my more Chazal. But he says, what, what, what Chazal are teaching us, what this Pasuk, what the Torah is teaching us here is, when you're privileged to be in a position of leadership, never ever think it's your own worthiness. Never think it's your merit. Never think that you've captured and you own that title. It's the schus of the tzibur. It's in the merit of the community that you serve. And when, the, when you've lost the community, then you've also lost that position of distinction. Know that it's the merit of the community you serve. Last week on Behind the Bima, we had Rabbi Eli Mansur, who's a great orator, a great tamachacham, a great speaker. If you haven't watched it yet, you should. I always plug, again, I don't make any money. That's not my career. Baruch Hashem, that's not my future. My life wouldn't change if it stopped tomorrow. But we have such incredible guests and you hear their message, their inspiration. Forget me, it's worth it to listen to them. So Rabbi Mansur said, I asked him, how do you get it all done? 
He has five websites that are updated daily. Daily Halacha, daily Gemara, daily this, daily... And he runs a large Safra synagogue in Brooklyn and in Deal. How do you get it all done? So he answered is, there's a siyata deshmaya that comes when you are a leader of a community. It's the schus of the community. He said, just like the Torah tells us, there's a concept called kfitzas haderach, to get from point A to point B should take this amount of time. But when you're doing it for the purpose of a mitzvah, it takes a fraction of that time. And Eliezer went to go find a wife for Rivka. He married a kfitzas haderach. So, so too, when you're preparing shiurim, when you're working on behalf of the tzibur, in their merit, you get more done than should be, technically, you should be able to get done. He said he knows that because when he leaves his tzibur to go speak somewhere else, he leaves the tzibur to go on vacation, they say, hey, would you mind speaking? It takes him 10 times longer to prepare than when he's in his own tzibur. When he doesn't have the merit of the tzibur, he doesn't have the efficiency, the productivity, he can't get done everything that he gets done. And that's the message over here, Torah wanted to tell us. If you lost the tzibur, you lost your merit. Moshe is still the same Moshe, and Moshe's greatness is still appreciated and beloved by Hashem. But the gedula of Moshe, the stature of Moshe, is on behalf of the merit of the people. Leaders lose that. They sometimes think that the people are lucky to have them, instead of realizing they're lucky to have the people. It's the people of the tzibur that they serve. They serve the tzibur, the tzibur doesn't serve them. And if the tzibur loses their merit, they lose their merit. Do I think that any invitations I've ever had to the White House or to go meatballs is because of me? You think it's Ephraim Goldberg? It's the charm or the good looks? It's because Palm Beach County, our votes matter. They make a difference. <laughs> it's because we decide and we determine presidential elections in Palm Beach County. Uh, you think I'm foolish that if I were in New York or California, I would never be invited? Because everybody already knows which way it's going to go. You have to know who you represent and that merit. And the moment you forget that and you lose that, then you are lost. And that's what the Torah was telling us here. And that's what the Torah even tells us. He brings a lot of riots. But here's an example of one. When Moshe gives the Shilton to Yeshua, it says, Nistatmu menu misoros mayanos Rashi and Dvarim says that the wellsprings of wisdom were closed up. Why? Moshe Rabbeinu, the wellsprings of wisdom were closed up all because he passed the mantle to Yeshua. Why? The answer is that that high-speed connection came in the merit of the people he was serving. Now that he became the emeritus, Moshe Rabbeinu emeritus, it said on the stationery, now that he became the emeritus, he lost the schus of the tzibur. So nistatmu misoros umayanos hachachma. A leader needs to never forget and never lose sight that their gifts and their opportunities is just the blessing and the merit. The leader serves the community. The community does not serve the leader. We did not get a kvitzah zaderach of time here. Let's see, one or two last ones. Let's throw in. Okay, I'll tell you which one I want to do. Let's do one more. I'm excited to do. Rabbi Yechezkel Levenstein, on this Pasuk. We'll do one more. And I have my whole Pasha Shir for next year prepared. Yay. Amcha, we were bothered. Shiches Amcha. Hashem says to Moshe, go down. Yechevet, come home. Your kids are misbehaving. Shiches Amcha. So the Medrash Rabbah says, Amcha v'lo ami? Hashem, my kids are not yours? My people, not your people. My community, not your... My membership, not your membership. So the Medrash answers that, you know who it was who was misbehaving? It was the Erev Rav. Aye, so if it was the Erev Rav, if the whole catalyst, the whole manufacturers of this eagle were the Erev Rav, they were the... I don't even know how to translate Erev Rav. 
They were the, uh, the riffraff. That's a good translation. Thank you. It's a group effort here. They were the riffraff. So if the whole troublemakers were the riffraff, why were the rest of the Jewish people punished? If they didn't actually contribute, they didn't run, they didn't do, they didn't worship, why were they punished? So Rav Chizko Levenstein, Mashkiach of Panovich, says the following. You know, the people were quiet. They didn't protest, they didn't object, they didn't say anything, even as they watched the riffraff among them wreak havoc. And yet they're held accountable. And that wasn't an easy thing to do, to intervene or interfere. To say something was not easy. The Rashi brings, He said, I'm coming back at the end of 40 days. The 40th day was in Shavasar B'Tamuz. The Satan came down and confused the whole world. And it looked like darkness and cloud. And they said Moshe died. It must be there's such a cloud over the world. There's such a darkness that has descended on the world. It must be because Moshe died. And Moshe died, he's not coming back. And that's what led everything. So Rashi says, They saw as if Moshe was being carried up above. He died and he was ascending on high. So you see, says Rechezka Levenstein, so Mashkiach would say, If you were there, if you heard Moshe was coming back, if you got caught up in this, in the day he was supposed to come back, instead of his reappearing, what is there? Darkness and cloud and confusion descends to the world. Would you too not be filled with doubt? Would you too not be confused? Would you too not consider that maybe this riffraff Maybe they're right. Maybe they're onto something. It's very, very easy to have fallen prey to this confusion, to get caught up, to get confused, to remain silent, and to not protest. And the only ones who do are Levi. Levi step out, Levi stand up, and they make a difference. It's a big chiddush of this medrash and this inside of Yechezka Levenstein of the Mashkiach is that the Chet Egel. This monumental chait, which we continue to suffer from until today, like the Maraglim and other, this chait Egel was not actually actively building the Egel, but was the silence to protest. So I'll close by telling you, I just wrote, I don't know when it's coming out, Mishbacha magazine has a new feature where they'll have a statement, and then they have three people, agree or disagree, and why. So they had a statement, something like, uh, I forgot the exact statement, which was that... Uh, if there are people who look like me and dress like me and they're acting in inappropriate behavior, it's never okay to be silent. Agree or disagree. I forgot exactly the statement. So I wrote my opinion and I'll share it with you. A little preview to this little column. In closing, based on this insight of the Chayta Egel, Shlomichu, Shiches Amcha, your nation failed, they became corrupt. And what was the corruption? Corruption is not only when you actively perpetrate, silence is a form of corruption. Silence is a form of corruption. I wrote the question, like almost all others, does not have an absolute answer. Some extremists are already marginalized and irrelevant. To publicly condemn them would give them the attention they seek. However, most often, it's critically important to confront the denouncers of the outrageous anti-Torah behavior, particularly those who dress or affiliate like you. 
It's more natural to condemn the other. We have a greater responsibility and have a more powerful impact when we decry the behavior of those who identify with us, either religiously or politically. Failure to help stop a Hashem, particularly within a community, which you have a say, makes you an accomplice to it. The Gemara Shabbos, Taf Nun Beis, tells us, anyone who had the capability to protest the sinful conduct of the members of his household, or the people of his town, or the whole world, and didn't, is liable for the sins of the members of his household, or his town, or the whole world, and is punished. Gemara Shabbos Kuf Yutes says, Yerushalayim would not have been destroyed had it not been for the people's failure to protest or prevent each other from sinning. We find in these moments that we're most accountable not for what's perpetrated, but the silence, indifference, apathy, complacency of those who are there. Gemara Sota Yudalev says, Paro asked three advisors what to do with the Jews. Everyone knows this Gemara Sota, it's a medrash. Bilam counseled Paro. He said, throw all the Jewish boys in the Nile. Eov, Eov was quiet, he was silent. And Yisro, in a sign of protest, ran away. So the Gemara says, Hashem punished Eov, and Hashem punished Bilam. Eov was punished, Bilam was punished, and Yisro was rewarded that he ran away in protest. Frek the Briskarov asks the Briskarov, I understand Bilam's punished because he advised Paro. Heinous advice. I understand Yisro's reward, he ran away in protest. Eov, don't reward him, don't punish him. Just move on. Switzerland. He's uh, Sweden. He's... Uh, Neutral. Neutrality. Why are you punished for neutrality? Asked the Briskorov. So he has such an important insight. He says that firstly, when someone's in an influential position and they remain silent, they're an accomplice. You're punished for silence because silence is not neutrality. Silence always benefits the perpetrator, never the victim. Always. But more than that, he says, Eov's silence in the face of Paro's terrible question actually emboldened Bilam. It gave him the confidence he needed to suggest his plan of annihilation. When a good, respected person like Eov is quiet, so Bilam said, okay. He tested the waters. Here's my plan. Here's what I would do. Eov, anything to say? No. Bilam says, if a good, respected person is going to be quiet, now I know there's no opposition. I can go forward with my plan. Silence is not neutrality. Not wanting to get involved is getting involved. Because our silence and indifference embolden and benefit the evildoer, it never protects the victim, and it never advances justice. Martin Luther King Jr. said, this could be the first time he's quoted in Mishpacha magazine, if it makes it in. He said, in the end, maybe not, I shouldn't have said that, maybe not. Anyway, he said, in the end we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. One day the Rebbe Hashanah himself will call to account those who perpetrated wrongdoing against him and against others. But there's no doubt he will also remember those who remain silent when they could have and they should have spoken. And I'll tell you, I've experienced this, I'm sure you have, but there are, there are crazy people and they're radicalizing others. And when they're not called out for their craziness and for radicalizing innocent people, when they're not called out for inciting people, when they're not called out for what they're doing, when the world doesn't want to get involved and doesn't want to interfere and doesn't want to stand up, and wants to remain silent, Rebona Shalom will hold people accountable like he did Eov. Because silence is an accomplice. And silence always benefits the perpetrator. And occasionally people say to me, Rabbi, you have so much courage, you stood up about the Agun or whatever. I'm telling you, I honestly don't know what they're talking about. When there's something obvious and right to do, I don't think it takes courage, it's right to do. But sadly, you look around the world and you see so many people, people in leadership positions, who have the privilege and the blessing and are living off of the of the tzibur. And they don't use that microphone, that megaphone, they don't use that 
platform to stand up and to call out and to confront, the silence is deafening. And that's what Hashem says to Moshe, amcha. It's only the rabble-rousers, it's only the riffraff who are causing the problems. Hashem doesn't say to Moshe, you got to get down there, the riffraff are acting out. you got to get down there, there's two crazies making insane videos online. Hashem says, you got to get down there because there's people making crazy videos online and nobody's saying anything. Where are the Jewish organizations? Where are the Jewish spokespeople? Where's the Jewish leadership? Where are they to marginalize? Where are they to call out? Where are they to confront? Where are they to deplatform? Kishiches amcha. We become corrupt when we're silent and indifferent, when we're quiet and we're not willing to confront the people who need to be silenced. Have a fantastic week, everybody. And a freilich and purim katan. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy.